On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of Sherry Rasmussen and the murder that took 23 years to solve. Welcome to Crime Bar. Well, Ashley, I've been dreading this recording since you started talking about it a couple weeks ago and said, Anna, this is going to upset you, disturb you, scar you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, very cool. Thanks. Thumbs up. I just said it would trigger you. Yeah, but you've word, you've used a variety of words ever since then that have... I think I just said upset and trigger. Oh, I maybe I put scar in there. Yeah, you definitely put scar in there. Yeah, I'm deflecting. Well, how are you? How are you feeling? Uh, well, you know, because I haven't shut up about it, but I just got back from Cabo yesterday, and I think there the ice in one of my margaritas was not so good. <laughs> so my boyfriend and I got hit pretty hard with Montezuma's Revenge, Ooh. our first getaway together, and the last, I don't know, 48 hours were not <laughs> pretty you had to share one bathroom <laughs> luckily we had two bathrooms oh but we laughed about it i think it was a good bonding experience i like it was like i said it's like that episode of sex in the city when uh charlotte and harry get Food diarrhea poisoning. all night after their date <laughs> well that was me and my boo <laughs> okay well you ready to get triggered yeah all right <laughs> When you put it like that. And if I run away and I need to go to the bathroom, it's not because my stomach hurts, because I'm crying. <laughs> so I'm going to do the story of Sherry Rasmussen. I know nothing. I don't think, as based off of the name. Okay. So I got most of my information from probably the most detailed book I have ever read. It was 600 pages, but I read it on my iPhone, so it was actually 1,300 pages. It Your was poor eyes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's... It, no wonder what, you have headaches. It wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's called The Lazarus Files by Matthew McGuff. Uh, I, I referenced some other articles and stuff on the story, but his book seems to be the most comprehensive piece of information because it's all based off of the actual uh, like police records and files and stuff. So okay. anyways, Sherry Ray Rasmussen was born February 7th, 1957. So she's an Aquarius. Aquarius. She grew up in Tucson, Arizona. She was very close to her family. Her dad was a dentist and her mom worked as like the manager of his office. She was very pretty, very intelligent and confident. She was very warm and caring, very gentle. She was like a kind of a, a flower. Like she was just very beautiful and everyone loved being around her, but mm -hmm. she was very gentle. But she was also very motivated and ambitious a driven flower. <laughs> she was a very driven flower, yes. Uh, by 16, she had already graduated high school and started studying critical care nursing at Loma Linda University. So she's she already knew like way in advance that she wanted to get married and have a family one day. And she knew that nurses worked pretty uh, family-friendly schedules. So she was like just planning ahead, like way, way ahead. Mm -hmm. 
And then after graduating from there, she moves to Los Angeles for her master's program at UCLA. So Sherry's parents, Loretta and Nels, were really worried about her moving to LA because back in the 80s, like crime was... There's like so many murderers there. All time high. Yeah, it was really, really dangerous. And they felt like because it's such an unsafe city, they live so far away. She's probably going to be living alone. She's going to be working nights to pay her way through school. So it was really important to them that they find a safe place for her to live. So they spent months looking for the perfect place that would put their mind at ease So when they found this brand new townhouse in Van Nuys, they ultimately settled on it because the complex itself was very safe. The neighborhood seemed very quiet and safe. They bought unit 205 at the Balboa Townhomes Complex at 7100 Balboa Boulevard. This whole complex, like as a whole, it it wasn't huge, but it was really secured. It had like six foot walls surrounding the entire property. You couldn't get in without a gate opener or a gate code. Each unit also had its own private garage on like the main level. And that was a really big selling point to them because then she could come and go any time of day or night and not have to be walking on the road, you know? And so even with her parents' willingness to help her, because, you know, they bought it for her, Mm -hmm. Uh, She was still very independent and she paid her way through school. And even though they didn't ask her to, she would pay her parents rent every single month for the townhouse. She didn't take it for granted. No, not at all. So in the summer of 1984, Sherry is 27. And because she she started her uh, nursing career so young, she is now the director of nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center. At 27. At 27. Great. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. That That makes me feel awesome about my life. Make you feel so different. Um, And she's been living in our townhouse for like four years at this point. Mm -hmm. And her best friend, Anita, decides to set her up with this cute guy named John Rutten. John was from San Diego. He was born February 5th, 1959. So he's also an Aquarius. Their birthday's like two days apart. Yeah. He had recently graduated from UCLA and had a really good job working as an engineer. So he's a little smarty pants. So they instantly hit it off. They're both very outgoing and athletic, and they had a very easy magnetic connection. John said he was so smitten with Sherry. That was like the best word to describe it. Like he was just smitten with Mm -hmm. her. She carried herself with so much confidence, and she was so successful in her career and at such a young age, which makes it all the more impressive. impressive. He was very motivated to like be the best version of himself because she was the best version of herself. Oh, that's so attractive instead of getting insecure, just right. like leveling up. Very cool. So being with her felt like inspiring to him. And he told, you know, their friends that there were so many things about her that he wanted to be yeah. also. So it was it's sort of like not a role model. That makes it sound weird, but just like she had certain characteristics and attributes that he just really admired that he she also wanted, wanted she made him want to be a better person yeah it's great so they get engaged only a few months into dating john moves in with her in her townhouse and it seems for the most part that everyone liked john except for her dad nels <laughs> he was pretty upfront with her about his opinion he thought john was nice enough but he felt like his daughter just could do better. Like, I was wondering if they, her parents got a vibe that he was like, I just met a woman that is awesome, very su- successful, and she likes me. I need to hang on and get engaged to her ASAP. Like, I don't really 
know if it was that. Um, like John and his family was very liberal, very California. Mm-hmm. And Sherry came from a family that was a little bit more religious, very conservative, gun-toting, Republican kind of, you know, like politics was a big topic between the two families that just didn't vibe. Okay. So Nels is just one of those guys. He's just this big, strong protector type. And he has three daughters. They're his world. The apples, yeah. So it's just like he felt as capable and confident as Sherry was. He just felt her dad felt like she really needed a very fierce protector type yeah, as okay. her life partner, yeah. and he just thought John was weak. And she, yeah, did he didn't feel safe? A little bit meek, weak, kind of you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 kind of that. It. Like he just thought he was kind of waspy or something. And then years later, many of Sherry's friends also say that at the time when they first got together, they also witnessed a lot of things that kind of made them go, okay, he's sort of a wimp. Like he's not, he may not be the best partner for her. Oh. And like nobody ever saw anything that was like concerning. Like John wasn't mean or abusive by any means. He was a very kind, gentle person. Okay. But it was just like... There was something about like she was just this shining, happy, bright light that was very confident. She could make a decision easily and stick to it. And John's very wishy-washy. Didn't stand for anything. Little to no spine. That kind of thing. Couldn't make a decision to save his life. And they just, but you know, none of that is like makes him a bad person. He's not a bad person. They just, it's one of those things of like, you're just kind of, you're kind of a wimp. Yeah. Okay. That, that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, everybody loves Sherry, the, you know, the people in her life. And she really loved him. She wanted to marry him. And so they just supported and respected her decision. And nobody, other than Nels, nobody really said anything because it wasn't really concerning enough mm-hmm. to bring it up. So Sherry was very, very close to her sisters and she was very close to her parents. And since she had moved out of the house at 16, she called and talked to her dad every night, sometimes for hours. Sherry in general is a pretty private person. So she didn't just share everything with just anybody. But for the most part, she told her parents pretty much everything that went Mm -hmm. on in her life. So in the months leading up to the wedding, Sherry told her parents that she and John kept experiencing these weird like ghost calls. So the phone would ring, one of them would pick up and then the line would be it would just be a deadline. Like there was no, oh, sorry, wrong number or heavy breathing or hang up or anything like that. Like there was just no noise. It was just silent. Mm-hmm. And it happened just after John had moved in. And then it went on like maybe once or twice a week for months. But it was just so strange that they were they just chalked it up to like it's a phone company issue. And then I read this note, but there was no like further clarification on like what it was. But Sherry told her parents that she got a few harassing phone calls at work. But that was so that those ghost calls were at their home. Then she said that she got harassing phone calls at work. But I, I don't know what that what the nature I already was. Have a prediction. But she just thought it was unrelated. Can I say my prediction or should I not say my prediction? You can cut my prediction, I guess, if... You can say it, but I'm going to cut it. (laughs) Okay. What I am effing predicting is that a woman is calling the house, waiting to see who picks up. And if it's him, then she speaks. And if it's her, she doesn't. And she just goes quiet. And that's why they occurred after he moved into the house. Because why would she have to do that if he wasn't living there? But that's the thing. Even when John would pick up, it was silent. They were both experiencing it, no matter who answered. And it was always at different times. Okay. You know, but they both work pretty regular schedules i'm just amped up yeah i can tell you i'm ready to get I can tell you're amped. <laughs> <laughs> so 
November 22nd, 1985. They had a beautiful sunset rehearsal dinner with all their friends and family at that amazing restaurant that we really want to go to, Castaway in Burbank. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's way up high on the hills at sunset. It's just beautiful. You get these sweeping views of LA. It's just, it's a gorgeous place. I really want to go there. Yeah, we got to do that. <laughs> um, even though plenty of people in Sherry's life had their private reservations about John. Everybody who was there admitted that the couple seemed very happy, very in love, and they get married the next day, November 23rd in Pasadena. They go on a beautiful honeymoon to Jamaica, and when they come back to LA, you know, they start their lives together as a married couple. They spend the holidays with their families. John gets an amazing new job. Sherry's career is going really well. She's looking at like an even higher up promotion. I don't even know what is above director of nursing, but something above that. And then about a month after the wedding, so this is December of 1985, Sherry mentions to her dad that she and John recently had a really high-end alarm system installed in their townhouse. And Nels was thinking that seemed odd to him. I mean, not because, uh, you know, he didn't care about safety. I mean, he had specifically purchased this home because of the safety. So he just said that like, in all of her younger college years when she was living there alone or when she was living there with like a girlfriend of hers, None of them had ever expressed concern to him about the security. So in his mind, if Sherry was scared, she would have told him. And if she'd asked, he would have happily installed an alarm system, but she never did. In fa- Oh, in fact, once years ago, when she lived alone, the townhouse had been broken into. Like the lock on one of the doors had been loose and someone had broken in after kind of like jimmying the door. Mm. And Sherry hadn't been home. Um, I don't think anything like significant was taken. So it wasn't a super big deal. But she wasn't even scared. Like she, you know, she she wasn't, even after something like that happened, like yeah. Nels uh, gave her a list of items to go get at the hardware store. And then from where he was in Tucson, over the phone, he walked her through how to secure the door. You know, she doesn't fright easily is she, the whole point. Basically, yeah. So that would set you and I. Yeah. And then another <laughs> time, when she was living there during college, she was living there with a girlfriend of hers and the roommate decided to spend the night at her boyfriend's, leaving Sherry alone for the night. But then after a few hours at the boyfriend's house, the roommate decided she actually wanted to go home. So she goes home, but she didn't call to let Sherry know. So she says that she comes inside and she starts walking up the steps and she's scared half to death when she gets to the top because Sherry is standing up there with like a bat ready to hit whoever is on the stairs oh my god and sherry's like oh my god it's you i i thought you weren't staying here i thought i heard you and i thought you were an intruder and then she tells her roommate my biggest fear is being here alone and then coming downstairs to find someone in the house so even with that and with the actual break-in she had never expressed fear about you know her safety there so when she's talking to her dad about this really high-end alarm system that they had just installed like they spent like two thousand dollars on this in 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 the 80s that was like five thousand dollars and so Nels just was just kind of like what the hell like that seems so extravagant and then she explains to him that there's a panic button on the main panel by the front door so you can just click it even if the alarm isn't set you can just click it and the authorities will get to you right away and they have the they bought two like individual panic buttons that are like the size of a garage remote that's like my this is like heaven to me right and so she's (laughs) she's explaining to her dad that 
That way, she and John, no matter where they are in the house, if something happens, you know, you can have it with you in the bathroom. You don't need to run all the way down to the front door. And she also tells them that, like, she and John even ran through, like, scenarios of, like, if anyone were to ever break in, you know, what what's the safest room to run to and click the button? What's Who do you call first? What what happens? They, like, went through all these scenarios. Okay. And so Nelson's just kind of like, what? This is not my daughter. This is so strange. But he also had gifted them the deed to the townhouse as their wedding present. So he had, at the time, he didn't ask what prompted this, did something prompt this. He just sort of thought, okay, their house, their business, whatever. The older you get, you do start weighing the possibility of a bad scenario as well more, I think. Like the older you get, a little bit more paranoid, you have more to lose and start understanding the risks of things more. Sure, yeah. Or she has a husband that is instilling more fear in her. Right. And honestly, like Nels is this gun-toting, conservative, like macho guy. And he thinks John's such a wimp that he's he's sort of like, yeah, of course you would be scared and want to panic button to walk around with. I know. know. That's actually embarrassing. (laughs) So on Sunday, February 23rd, 1986, exactly three months after their wedding, Sherry's sister and her husband came over to visit with the newlyweds at their townhouse. Her sister, Teresa, was pregnant and Sherry had gotten her a little present and they all just hung out for a few hours. They had a normal day. John and Sherry would always get the Sunday scaries, so they always made it a point to do something fun on Sunday nights. Like that was their date night. Okay. To just get- Start the week off right. Start the week off right. They would do something fun. So they went to the movies that night. John had gotten a new car that he loved driving at night on the freeways when they were all empty. So- they lived in Van Nuys, but they went to a movie out like in Simi Valley so that oh, they'd have like a nice long drive. And the following day, Monday morning, February 24th, John got up and was getting ready for work. Sherry normally left for work first, but she was still in bed and she told John that she was contemplating calling in sick. She had to give a presentation during a class today at work. It was like some monthly obligation that she thought was really pointless. She hated doing it. Sometimes she bailed on it. Mm-hmm. And so she was telling him that she was thinking, like, I might just play hooky and not go in at all. She kind of hurt her back the day before uh, working out. So she was like, maybe I'm just going to say that I don't feel well, that I hurt my back. And he's like, okay. So John leaves for work at approximately 7.20 a.m. He drops off stuff at the dry cleaners and he gets to work just before 8 a.m. Around 8.30 a.m., a neighbor passes Sherry's townhouse and just happens to notice that the garage door was closed like normal. Mm-hmm. But then the same neighbor returned home around 9.45 a.m. And she notices that Sherry's garage door is now open, but there's no cars inside. And she thought that was odd because she'd lived there like as long as Sherry had, which I think at this point, it's like a little over five years. Mm-hmm. So she'd lived there as long as Sherry had. And in all those years, she'd never seen the garage door left open when, with no cars there. Yeah. And then around 10 a.m., John calls the house to see how Sherry's doing, but no one picks up. So he assumes that Sherry ended up going to work after all, and he calls her office. Her secretary picks up and says that Sherry wasn't in. Her schedule says that she's teaching a class, and she had just assumed that Sherry had decided to go straight to the class and then straight home because she's done that in the past before, like not even stopping into her office. Mm -hmm. That was the receptionist's like assumptions. She doesn't know that. So with this idea in his mind, he assumes that Sherry will be home sometime soon. He goes back to work and then for the rest of the day, he makes periodic calls to the house expecting her to be in any time now, but she never picks up or calls back. 
Sherry's sister, Teresa, the one who had the pregnant one who had visited the day before, she yeah. also tried calling the house once. And when no one answered, she just assumed that Sherry was still at work. She says later that Sherry never called her back. Sherry's other sister also called at some point during the day and never heard back. It's not totally alarming to anybody because it's 1986. Yeah. Like no one has a cell phone. So you're getting a hold of them when they're near a landline. Correct. So everyone yeah. just is writing this off as other things. At 12 p.m., some gardeners that were working in the Balboa complex find a purse in the bushes. So they knock on the door of a resident, a woman named Anastasia, who lived across the way from Sherry. Mm -hmm. She said they didn't speak English, so she pieced together that they'd found a purse outside her unit and then knocked on her door. She opens the purse and she sees that it belongs to Sherry Rasmussen. So the woman points them to Unit 205 and she watches them walk over with the purse, knock a few times. Nobody answers. So they come back and they just give it to her. And she's like, okay. She doesn't know her neighbor. She just knew that that yeah. was the blonde woman across the street. Yeah. So she puts the purse down in her house and she's like, I'll return this later when they're home. At 12.30 p.m., a housekeeper in the unit next door to Sherry's is working when all of a sudden she hears noises coming from Unit 205 from Sherry's unit. Mm -hmm. She said she had worked for this person for years, cleaning this person's house on a weekly basis for years. And she had never heard anything coming from the neighboring unit before. She said that she heard what sounded like a loud thud in people arguing and then someone yelled. Okay. Like it was like a sort of like a... She couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. I was going to say, was it a female or a male? She couldn't tell. It was just kind of like a, a, a long, like, ah, like kind of thing. Like it was like a, like a, yeah. a yell, not, not someone in pain or something. <laughs> I, I am picturing you being scared and going, ah, <laughs> with your hands like that. <laughs> ah, don't like it. I don't like this at all. But she, she, then she hears this, this loud thud and then everything just goes silent. She doesn't know what to make of it. So she just goes back to working and then she doesn't hear anything else. So I've been in my bathroom and dropped something and literally gone, ah, and, yeah. then, and then you're done. With right. That. Yeah. And so, you know, it could be anything. So that evening around 5 p.m., John gets off work. He runs some errands and he gets home at approximately 6 p.m. When he pulls into the complex, he sees that the garage door is wide open and Sherry's BMW isn't there. So now he's like super confused because he's like, okay, so did she or didn't she call in sick? Either way, she should definitely be home by now. Yes. He parks in the garage like normal. And before he walks into the house, he notices there's a ton of shattered glass on the driveway. But he doesn't get totally alarmed because Sherry had recently dinged her car. And when that happened, she had gotten it fixed right away. So in his mind, trying to justify like what he's looking at, he's like, oh, she must have like dinged it when she's pulling out and now she went to go get it fixed and that's why she's not home. Okay. You know, he just sort of tries to rationalize it a little bit. I mean, okay, so the car's really new. She's very proud of it. When they had gotten engaged, instead of a diamond ring, she said she wanted a car <laughs> because oh, it was a more practical that makes sense. use of funds. It depreciates, which is, but so does a diamond, so right. whatever. No, does it? Diamonds depreciate. Do they? Oh, Yeah. If you want to get, a, I think it's uh, rubies, emeralds, and topaz that'll appreciate in value, but diamonds will depreciate. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, anyways. Don't hold me to it, though. But do, because <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> um, so that's what he writes this off as. And then he sees that the door leading into the house is wide open and his blood runs cold. Yeah. Normally, when they'd both be out of the house, they'd set the alarm or if they're at home sleeping, they set the alarm. And obviously, they close all of their doors. So this is a very concerning thing to see. 
you know, this morning before he left for work, he obviously didn't set the alarm because she was in bed. And then he realizes the day before when they had guests over, they would never go through the front door because they parked in the garage. So they so would, co- they would come in through that door, yeah. you know, but they would open the door for guests oh or to let the God. cat in and out. And that door, the front one, when you'd open it from the inside, it would automatically unlock. So then once you do that, then you would have to manually lock it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't just lock, you know? And so then he's like thinking back to the day before, like, did or did I not lock did, it? Did we lock it yeah. after everybody left? And he can't remember. But he knows that he didn't even bother checking to see if it was locked before he went to work because they so rarely use that door. So he drops his stuff and he runs inside and the place is an absolute mess. An entire shelf from their entertainment system and all of its contents has collapsed off the wall. You know, speakers are hanging off of the wall. There's wires all over the place. End tables have all their drawers pulled out. The contents are just dumped everywhere. Like it is a crazy mess. A telephone was on the ground next to a shattered vase. The stereo system, VCR and CD player are all dismantled and stacked on top of each other, sitting by the stairs of all places. And in the middle of all of this mess is Sherry's lifeless body on the living room floor. She's still in her bathrobe. She's barefoot and she's on her back. The robe has sort of fallen open and her face is swollen and covered in dried blood. Her mouth is open as if she was gasping. One of her eyes is completely swollen shut and the other is wide open. Oh my God. Her arms were raised and bent and one of her legs was slightly raised and bent at the knee. It looked as if she'd been in the middle of sitting up off the floor when rigor mortis just took hold and she was just frozen in place. So he reached down and he touched He was so scared that he like touched her calf muscle and he said that she was cold and stiff to the touch and he couldn't find a pulse anywhere. And then he sees like right in the center of her chest is a bullet hole. So she was cold. Then that means that this must have occurred like very soon after he left for work. She's she's not only cold rigor mortis is completely taken hold. So like so it's been hours. Like so, she's, she has to have been like this all day. So he left at 7.20. So yeah. I don't and know. And now this is just 6, 6 p.m. PM. So that must have been right after he left. Yeah. So staring at his wife, she looked exactly as she had when he left that morning. She was still in the same clothes. She was in her um, like panties and like a camisole tee, tank top kind she of thing. She slept in or something. Yeah, what she had slept in. And so she had just, you know, put her robe on, obviously, when she got out of bed after he left. And he said that he just, he couldn't comprehend how this could have happened. He said that, you know, he just, he woke up, it's Monday morning. He's got to get ready to go to work. It's just like that normal night the day before. It's just a completely normal mundane thing. He said that kind of had asked her, are you getting up for work? And she yawned and mumbled the thing about calling in sick. She didn't really want to go and she didn't really fully wake up and he didn't disturb her. And he said he's walking out and he looked back at her and she's all, she looks all warm and cuddly and he like didn't want to leave probably up in the bed and he wanted to stay. And he thought to herself, cause she, he's looking at her face as she's starting to drift off back to sleep. And he thought she is so beautiful. He says that he just, he couldn't comprehend specifically her face, the face that was so familiar to him, the one he woke up to every day, the the last thing he saw of her before he left that morning, and he thought to himself, she's so beautiful, is now unrecognizable. Yeah. It's been he, brutally abused. It, it, and that was the most, obviously she was dead, but it was like, 
that was the thing that he he could not compute Mm -hmm. how she could look like herself in the morning and then he's blissfully unaware a few miles away at work all day having a totally mundane monday yeah you know he comes into his home this place that feels safe and sacred to you and it has obviously been the scene of a violent fight yeah and then you see your wife like this he just couldn't comprehend it he couldn't handle it so he grabbed like a little hand towel and he put it over her face and then he grabbed the phone and he called 911. So the police are there within minutes. So he got, he pulled in at six and the police were there at like 6.08. So he, I mean, he acted but fast. It, it was a very, very quick um, okay. response on his end. The lead detective is an LAPD homicide detective named Lyle Mayer. And he takes John outside. John is hysterical. He takes him outside. They take him to the station. And now they can properly investigate the crime scene. So they piece together this. An intruder entered through the unlocked front door and started to gather electronics to steal. And they started to move upstairs only to be surprised by Sherry. They shot at her but missed and the bullet hit a sliding glass door that led to a balcony that overlooked the garage. That's what the glass John saw in the driveway was from. Mm. Sherry ran downstairs, tried to push the panic button on the main panel near the front door, and then was tackled by the intruder before she could click it. And then a massive physical altercation occurs in the living room. The police believe, and I don't know what makes them think this, but they're completely believe that this fight went on for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. They think Sherry at some point managed to wrestle the gun away but then faltered and couldn't pull the trigger or didn't pull the trigger, oh my God. which elevated the intruder's aggression. So they fight more and Sherry got the intruder into a headlock. So the intruder bit into Sherry's arm, her forearm so hard, it broke the skin and grazed her bone. I So they do they think that she grabbed the gun? Was Were her fingerprints on the gun that I'm assuming? If they would assume. Oh, no, the gun wasn't there. Oh, okay. So they're just assuming that she took the gun at some point. Honestly, I don't really understand how they came up with any of this. But it's, okay, it's so like pretty, that doesn't it's make pretty any convoluted sense to me. and confusing. But okay. this is the consensus of what likely happened. So okay. that's they're trying I'm, to build a picture. Yeah, I get yeah. It. So when she gets bit in the forearm, Sherry obviously lets go, and that's when the intruder gets the gun back. Pistol whips her Sherry in the eye, which stunned her, and then the intruder grabs a ceramic vase nearby hits Sherry over the head with it, shattering the vase, and Sherry stumbles towards the front door. The intruder grabs a folded quilt from the couch, wraps it around the gun, and then shoots Sherry twice, hitting her in the chest each time, and she collapses to the floor. Then the intruder approaches her, leans down closely, and shoots Sherry in the center of her chest at point-blank range. And that bullet went clear through her body which obviously uh, killed her within minutes. Although what's interesting is that the other two bullet wounds in her chest would have also been fatal within moments. So this last one, you know, someone it was overkill and it was a very pointed effort to make sure she died. Like, and I also picture them making eye contact with her. And yeah, it being literally. a very personal thing. Because this person is standing inches from her face yeah. and the gun is touching her in the chest, you know. So that's as close as you can possibly be. Like they wanted their face to be the last thing that she saw. Yes. Then the intruder abandoned the idea of taking the electronics, found the keys to Sherry's BMW and took off in it, leaving Sherry to bleed out. 
The handmade quilt used as an impromptu silencer was something that Sherry's grandmother had given her (sighs) a few Christmases before. And she had sewn a neck hole and armholes into it so Sherry could wear it around the house when she was cold. Like Like a a snuggie. snuggie. Yeah. Oh my God. God bless grandmas. And so Sherry always kept it folded in the living room. The police swab the bite mark on her arm for saliva and they make a dental mold from the teeth. DNA testing obviously wasn't very concrete then, but it was standard procedure to still collect any possible DNA evidence for future testing. At the time, they wouldn't have been able to find the killer based off the DNA swab, but they would be able to see certain factors, like whether it was a male or female. And an officer made a note that just generally speaking, women are biters, not men. However, women are not typically intruders, but they think that just because of the bite alone, they're probably looking for a female suspect. And then after testing it, they confirm it was a female. Blood is found splattered on walls. There are bloody prints found on certain items, but when they look really closely, they realize there are no actual fingerprints which means whoever made these marks had been wearing gloves. There was a bloody print on the alarm system's panic button near the front door, which is interesting because the button was never actually clicked. So either Sherry was already bleeding and tried pushing it, but just just grazed it, or she was already down on the floor bleeding out when someone else smeared blood on it without actually pushing it. And nothing was disabled? Like the alarm system, the wires weren't cut or anything like that? No. Interesting. Interesting. So at a glance, it obviously looks like someone was robbing the place. And when Sherry surprised them, they killed her. But when you're actually looking very closely, that theory doesn't add up. It seems more like it was an assassination that was staged to look like an interrupted robbery. It was a cover up. So some of the things that make you see that it's staged. John and the police both acknowledge that all of the stereo equipment that was stacked near the stairs were blocking the stairs in such a way that... Whether it was two people fighting as they went down the stairs or one person running down the stairs, you would have knocked over the entire stack in order to to get down. Mm-hmm. And so during the investigation, the police repeatedly noted how strategically, like during the crime scene, they would have to like step around the stack in order to use the stairs. And they found bloody prints on the devices that were stacked, but no actual fingerprints. So someone with gloves after Sherry was bleeding, stacked them and put them it's next to difficult. that. So that compl- that alone completely Debunks. ruins yeah. this robbery, interrupted robbery thing. And then also the mess in the living room does not make any sense. The drawers had all been pulled out from like end tables and the contents were just chaotically dumped, but then left where they fell. Mm-hmm. So like if you're, if you're pulling out a drawer and you dump it out and you're looking for something, you dump it out and then you move it around looking for it, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. But these, they could tell the drawer had just been dumped and everything fell in a way that was like, that's you know, how it was. They hadn't been disturbed. But also, who the hell puts like valuables in the end tables in their living rooms, you know? So, like, that alone was a, such a strange thing that anyone was even looking in there. Like, Sherry's jewelry box in her bedroom was in plain view and undisturbed with a ton of valuables and wasn't touched. Wow. And then obviously, they're claiming this was a robbery. But aside from the BMW, the only physical item missing from the home was Sherry and John's marriage license. Sherry's BMW is later found a few miles away with the keys sitting in the ignition and they found a few drops of blood and a long brown hair, which matters because Sherry had short blonde hair. And it's just the aggression 
in which this intruder fought with Sherry, the way that they ultimately assassinated her in that way that we just talked about, like so intimately right in her face, it, it just doesn't make sense for a typical robbery because most intruders would just run if they get interrupted. But the evidence of what went on and the level of aggressive injury inflicted on Sherry just points to this being very personal. Also, the fact that you said that they thought that they fought for, it was like 45 to an hour and a yeah. half. In my head, if it was a man, it was they were obviously burglarizing, that would be something where it's like, in their head, it's an efficient kill where it's getting rid of somebody so that they can take something away. Yeah. But if it's a female with a motive and it's taking that long, I would say that it is somebody that they're, there had to have been a discussion at some point. Yeah. Violence, pause, discussion, yeah. threats, murder. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But obviously you know without getting to there the spouse is always the first suspect obviously yes however the same evening that sherry's body is found before even her parents have been informed of her death detective mayor rules john out as a suspect he does that before verifying john's alibi before properly interviewing him down at the station before speaking to any friends or family or colleagues of john's and sherry's Detective Mayer boasts that he is an excellent judge of character and that he knew right away John was not involved in his wife's death. He said John's grief was so moving and so sincere, he just, he couldn't have possibly done it. And he's so weak. Plus, John's entire day, <laughs> John's entire day ends up being accounted for by various witnesses anyways. But still, like making that kind of judgment call right off the bat gives you an idea of Detective Mayer's kind of attitude and how he handled the case overall so moving forward he's extremely protective and compassionate towards john which doesn't make any sense but also then protecting his gut instinct because literally then he's the that's, fool. A, that's exactly what it is and because sherry's parents weren't informed for quite a while mayor develops this strange alliance towards john and then treats sherry's family as like suspicious outsiders so the 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 behavior that just should have automatically been applied to the spouse who found her was actually applied Displaced. to her family yeah. yeah and so it just doesn't make any sense only a couple of hours after discovering sherry's body before the crime scene is even done being processed detective mayor tells john he's pretty sure he knows what happened okay he said quote now john here's what i think happened I'm usually a pretty good judge of character. I'm fairly certain that you have absolutely nothing to do with this, okay? I believe your house was burglarized today sometime before 10 a.m. I believe they got in your front door by prying open the door. I don't think it was locked, okay? If it was locked, maybe just the bottom lock was locked. Okay. <laughs> Once those persons or that person or whoever was inside... I believe they were trying to steal your stereo and probably some other items. And then that's when John cuts him off crying and he's shaking his head. And he's he's like, why would they do anything to her, though? Why wouldn't they just run? Oh, <laughs> like, this, this is bad. such a joke. I'm trying not to, like, laugh about it. So Mayor responds and he says, quote, I don't know, John. I don't know. John, things happen, okay? Here's what I think happened. I think Sherry came downstairs and I think she surprised them. And she was hurt. I feel like this guy knows four words and it's okay. And I think this is what yeah, happened. Literally, that, that's it. That's it. He reminds me of Matt Mustard from that Denise Huskin story. Like a total idiot. So I wanted to bring that up earlier when it was like, wait a second. So this guy just gets like deemed completely innocent while the other guy is just like pinned as an in. Is, uh, I know. What I the know. heck is with I know. law enforcement, I man? Know. 
So as we've already established, John is a wimp. He let several hours go by before telling Sherry's family about her murder. And even then, just too tough for him. John was too chicken shit to tell him himself. He made his dad call them. He couldn't even speak to them. And so because he flipping knows her parents are woken up at like 1 a.m. She's she was found at 6 p.m. You know, they could have called right away and informed her family and they could have flown out immediately. So Nell's went ballistic when he hears and he realizes the timeline and he's he's demanding to speak to john directly and his john's dad like won't let him protects him yeah he's too coward to even like take his father-in-law's call in fact hours before this like in the transcript where he's being formally interviewed by detective mayor mayor asks john like has uh, her family been informed yet and he's like oh gosh i don't know i haven't called them like maybe my mom is called by now i'm not sure and then he says something about dreading making the call because sherry and her family are all so close and it's going to be really hard to tell them sherry's parents and her sisters they all lived out of state so learning of her death after 1 a.m meant that they'd be stuck waiting for hours before they could catch the first flight to la and, you know, had John done the right thing, then they could have come out immediately. Out. But instead, they all just sat up all night. Well, that was strategic on his end. He wanted to buy himself more time. I don't know that. that I think he's just too chicken shit. Yeah, it's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> somehow, I, I, somehow. I honestly think he was just yeah, way just too, too scared to make that call. Because he called his parents immediately. Well, that's, that they're who protects him. Yeah. The first time that Detective Mayer finally spoke to Sherry's father, Nels, he explained to the grieving father that they quickly ruled John out as a suspect. He showed Nels a photo of two Hispanic men and explained that they suspected it might have been these two men because they were suspected of robbing several homes in the area lately. And Nels was like, okay, but you said that this fight went on for an hour or more. I mean, Sherry was athletic, but there's no way she could fight two men for that long. And the detective just didn't have much of an answer to that. And then Nels said... Well, what about the bite mark? The officer noted that women generally bite, and you told us the DNA testing showed that the saliva came from a woman. And Mayer said, well, men have been known to bite, but it must mean that maybe there was a woman with them. And finally, Nels asks, well, have you checked out John's ex-girlfriend, the lady cop? And Mayer dismissed him and said, you watch too many cop shows. So the lady cop that Nels was referencing was this sort of ex-girlfriend of John's from college. Stephanie Lazarus was born on May 4th, 1960. So she's a Taurus. Stephanie and John met in college when they were living in the same dorms at UCLA. They became very close friends and their mutual friends remember that over time. Stephanie seemed to develop very serious feelings for John, but he never seemed interested in her in that way. He just considered her a close friend. One time, he even told one of their mutual friends, she has a nice body, but her face just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> that reminds me of when uh, there was one time in high school that I was called a butterface. Oh, it was brutal. What an and then I had an urban dictionary what it meant. And I was oh. like, oh, because <laughs> at the time I'm like, like buttery skin. Anyways, back to Stephanie. <laughs> Stephanie was a tomboy who was very brazen. Um, her humor and her overall demeanor was somewhat aggressive. She played <laughs> sports throughout college. She didn't date very much because the guys that she knew viewed her as more of a buddy than mar- <laughs> girlfriend material kind yeah. of thing. But she also just kind of seemed immature. Like one time when John was showering in the communal bathrooms, 
Stephanie ran in, grabbed his towel and his clothes and just left him in there. And then another time, which I think this is just straight up illegal, (laughs) she snuck into his dorm and took a photo of him sleeping in his underwear. So this is how she flirts. It's like as if she's she's in elementary school. Yeah, not in college kind of thing. he dated her? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Oh. Did he or did he not? That's the question. Ah. (laughs) So one friend in particular remembers... One time Stephanie was really down in the dumps and she told him that she was in love with John, but she was depressed because when she told him how she felt, John shot her down and said he only wanted to be, quote, buddies. (laughs) And as far as their mutual friends knew, that's the way it stayed. So it was just sort of an open secret that John didn't have feelings for Stephanie, but that she continued being friends with him in the hopes that one day he might fall in love with her Change his mind. Yeah. John claims that never came to be. He only viewed her as a friend. He insists that he made that very clear and that he never did anything to lead her on. But I do want to say he's an idiot. (laughs) He would do stuff like drive her from LA to San Diego to introduce her to his family, something he never did with any other girls. Uh, they spend all their time together. They'd go on trips together and then eventually they start having sex. He reminds me of a certain someone and we're not going to say it, but my God. Obviously, Stephanie takes all of this to mean her plan the is wrong working way. because <laughs> who wouldn't think that? Yeah. I mean, he's, I would think he, he's that. like, no, we're just friends. Then they're bo- they act like boyfriend and girlfriend. So of course she thinks they're dating, you know? She thinks that John's falling in love with her and she develops a... Very close relationship with his family and his friends. She does her best to integrate herself into his life as much as possible. And all signs point to this being a success because this all continues even after college. Like John even took her as his date to his like work Christmas parties. So he actually had serious feelings, I I can guarantee, for her. But he was just embarrassed by it because she was always written off by other guys. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. So John, on the other hand, he says that he only ever viewed her as a friend and he thought that Stephanie understood that. He thought when they started sleeping together, they both viewed it as casual sex between friends, nothing more. He considered her a wonderful person, one of his oldest friends, and he thought they were on the same page as far as their status went. And he insists to this day that she was never his girlfriend. I guess this is like a PSA if there's anybody listening here. You can't have casual sex and introduce them to the family. No. <laughs> you just can't do that. He said they, like they would see each other maybe a few times a month. Sometimes they'd have sex. Sometimes they wouldn't. He says all in all, he thinks they probably slept together 25 to 30 times between 1981 and 1984. That's not that much. Stephanie had become a police officer with the LAPD after graduating from UCLA. So between the police academy... And then obviously starting that job, it's a very demanding job and draining. So she didn't complain to him that they didn't see each other more than a couple times a month. Mm -hmm. So John's having his cake and eating it too, conveniently ignoring how much he's actually toying with Stephanie. And Stephanie is so desperately in love with him, she doesn't even see this for what it is. Or if she does, she just accommodates him however he wants because... She's going to lose him. stubbornly believes, like, eventually he's going to change his mind. Doesn't sound like a Taurus at all. (laughs) (laughs) My God. (laughs) I see nothing. (laughs) There's no resemblance. (laughs) I thought you meant, like, I see no red flags. That's like the Taurus, like, (laughs) Pantra. I see no red flags. I refuse to see them. 
Oh so my God. in February of 1984, for his 25th birthday, Stephanie throws a massive surprise party for John. She invited all of his friends and family, and everyone there says that she very much acted like the birthday boy's girlfriend. So it was a real gut punch for Stephanie to find out a couple days after throwing this party for him that in all the years they'd been sleeping together, aka the time that she thought they were in a relationship, John was regular see- regularly seeing lots of other girls. <laughs> so for the next three or four months, Stephanie is so depressed by this that she throws herself into her job. She tries to date other people, but she continually notes in her journals and to her friends how much it hurts her that John is seeing other people. But she sort of has the attitude of like, I'll just be patient and like wait it out. He'll come back to me eventually. Okay. So when John meets Sherry Rasmussen that summer... Stephanie knows about it and viewed it as just like the latest girl he was seeing. Like one of many in a revolving door kind of thing. Like let let him get this out of his system, whatever. Right, comes back to mama. (laughs) But obviously that's not the reality because John was head over heels for Sherry. All of his friends say that what he had with her was so different from the other girls he dated. And then obviously within months of meeting, they were engaged. Stephanie is devastated when she learns about this. Not only was it heartbreaking that you know, to hear that he was going to marry somebody else. But it was like, especially offensive that she heard it casually through mutual friends. Like he didn't even tell her. And also like it was so casual through other friends as if like they weren't actually in a relationship all this time. Right. Right. She writes a letter to John's mom, someone that she thought that she had developed a pretty close relationship to over the years. And Stephanie tells her that she isn't sure they'll ever see each other again. She's so devastated and she doesn't understand John's decision She's so in love with him and she can't understand why he would marry someone else. And then a colleague who really didn't know Stephanie that well remembers that around this time, she and Stephanie were chatting and Stephanie mentions that she was very happy in a relationship with John, her college boyfriend, and that they were excited to get married soon. And so the reason that this stuck out to the colleague years later when she's interviewed is that the entire department knew Stephanie as a very private person. She didn't really socialize or date other officers, which was the norm. Mm-hmm. And she rarely shared any personal details. And so this was just like a lot of very specific detail to share. Weird thing to volunteer. Yeah. And so it just happened to stick out in that colleague's mind yeah, I get forever. That. According to John, within a few weeks of getting engaged, Stephanie called him in hysterics, begging him to come over and talk to her. And he said that in all the years that he had known her, he had never seen her emotional, much less this emotional. So he agrees and he goes to her house, but he doesn't tell Sherry about it. Stephanie told him she was hurt. He hadn't told her about the engagement and she wished he was marrying her, not someone else. She's hysterical, heartbroken, and John tries to console her by gently reminding her that you know he'd always been very clear with her about he doesn't see her that way so this shouldn't be that surprising so oddly that didn't seem to make her feel any better (laughs) she's inconsolable (laughs) and john just a cherry on top john is one of those guys who is very uncomfortable with a woman crying so when she started begging him to have sex with her just one last time he says he felt so bad for her he he just wanted her to calm down and just to get her to stop crying already so he agrees he has sex with her one last time and he later says i thought it would give her closure 
again, <laughs> Sherry knows nothing about this visit. Oh, she didn't know about the the closure sex. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she wasn't chill she, with she, it. <laughs> she didn't even know that he was going over there. So obviously, she doesn't know that her new fiance just cheated on her. If you are dumb enough to have sex to console somebody, I hope that you are stricken by lightning. <laughs> Is it struck? Stricken. Stric. Oh. Stroken. Str- strict. <laughs> Strikes I hope by lightning strikes you. <laughs> I hope it strokes you fucking hard. I'm so mad. <laughs> oh, just wait. Okay. Just wait. All right. I'm buckled up. Huh? One week later, one week after this closure sex, John moves into Sherry's townhouse, and that is when his soon-to-be father-in-law, Nels, gifts them the deed to the townhouse as an early wedding present. Mm-hmm. So that's Stephanie. That's the girl that Nels is asking the police to look into. But the thing is, Detective Mayer tells him that they've already asked John if he or Sherry have any problems with exes, and John had said no right away. He's like, I comforted mine. She's but, fine. <laughs> she's good. <laughs> Mayor had specifically asked, you don't have any ex-girlfriends, no one that might be upset you recently married Sherry, and without missing a beat, John said, no, not at all. But he is lying because it turns out Stephanie had become a huge point of contention in this very short marriage between Sherry and John, and luckily, Sherry had told her parents all about it. Oh, Sherry wasn't cool with it? And it is struck by lightning. I want to also, because I don't want people to think I'm an idiot. It's not stricken. <laughs> I'm going to say it's stroke. It's stroke by lightning. <laughs> Anyways, back to this I awful. lightning strokes you. <laughs> so the first complaint that Sherry made to her parents about this ex of John's, it happened before they got married. You have something in your hair and I want you to get it out because I don't know if it's a bug. What is it? What is it? Just do it. Just, I thought it was a weird Oh, thing. thank fucking oh God. God. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, proceed. I'm buck- I'm ready. I'm buckled. I'm buckled. I put my seatbelt back on. Sherry. Sherry told them that a few. Well, I'm going to say this again. Sherry told them that a few weeks after getting engaged, she's at work one day. She's sitting at her desk and a brunette walked in. The woman had walked right past Sherry's receptionist, totally ignoring her, entered the office and closed the door behind her. Sherry said the woman was wearing a tight cropped tube top and tiny Daisy Duke shorts to show off how toned her body was. The woman identified herself as John's longtime girlfriend and she told Sherry that she needed to break off their engagement. The woman told her, I've known John a long time. I know what he needs. I'll be here waiting to pick up the pieces when this marriage crumbles and then dramatically turns to leave. And I'll be wearing a tube top when I do it. (laughs) Yeah. And so... Sherry was not phased and she chuckled and said, no, I don't think we'll be needing your services. And then, and that really irked the brunette. And so she turns and dramatically says, if I can't have John, no one will, including you. Oh, and by the way, we're still sleeping together. And then she walks out. The receptionist did not hear any of the stuff that had been said. She just could verify that a brunette woman wearing these clothes Came in, talked for a few minutes, came out, and then Sherry came out crying and went home early that day. Sherry did not tell her parents the part of the conversation where the brunette claimed that John cheated. She told them everything except that part. However, John later says that that evening he came home from work and Sherry confronted him about it. He says he confessed to sleeping with Stephanie. He completely told Sherry the truth. 
he's he insisted that this this girl from college they never even dated they just had slept together a few times it was very casual and she was kind of hung up on him and she just wasn't someone they needed to worry about so he begged sherry's forgiveness and after a long conversation they decided to stay together you want to know what i hate i'll tell you i don't like the fact that she is someone that means apparently nothing she's not even an ex-girlfriend she's someone you don't even have to worry about yet he cared enough about consoling her that he had sex with her Mm -hmm. oh excellent observation anna thanks yeah John is the only person who says that Sherry found out about the cheating and he insists that she forgave him under the agreement that he would never see this woman again, obviously. And so hearing this later, Sherry's friends and family, they say that she never shared with him that John cheated on her, but they can also see how if Sherry had already decided to forgive him and stay, and obviously she would have been humiliated it makes sense to them that she may have just kept this a secret. I, not, I do understand that. So, so um, you know, th- I think that that's what happened. Yeah. So that had been in the summer of 1985. And then John and Sherry get married that November. And then in December, Sherry made her second complaint to her parents about John's ex. Sherry and John were at home and the ex showed up at their townhouse. Sherry was surprised because one, this meant that John had at some point given her their address and somehow she'd gotten into the complex without anyone buzzing her in. She showed up at their actual front door. And then two, John had promised never to see her again. So why the hell is she showing up? She showed up with a pair of skis and asked John to wax them for her. And John says, okay. This, the, um... <laughs> Sherry was so mad because he said yes, instead of telling her to get fucking lost. He was very polite, scared almost, like non-confrontational. And she said that the woman was very like peacocking and aggressive and openly flirting with John. And she stayed so long that Sherry had to say, you need to go. I would, I would, I (laughs) I would kill them. Yeah. So she tells her parents that after the ex left, they'd gotten into this big argument. She told John, do not wax those skis. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It it would just be so much better if I just did it and I don't ruffle any feathers and she'll go away. So this scaredy cat is fine ruffling his wife's feathers. Yeah, no, that's, this is a personality type. What's his birthday? But But this chick from college that he swears he never dated. Do you know what his birthday is? He's an Aquarius. He's an Aquarius. Okay. Yeah. And she's the Taurus. Wait, Oh, no, no, I thought Sherry. The married couple are both Aquarius. With a day apart or two days apart. Yeah, but it's the the ex, Stephanie, is the The Taurus. Taurus. Okay, I was just wondering. The third complaint Sherry made to her parents was then a couple weeks later after this. It wasn't totally surprising, but it's now January of 1986, and Sherry is pissed because she's home alone, and the ex shows up at the door to pick up her freshly waxed skis again. She didn't get buzzed in. So somehow she's making her way into the complex. And she has the same attitude, very peacocking kind of thing. But that particular detail was very odd to Nels because it's one thing if she got lucky and followed another person in the first time. But for that to happen twice was odd because remember Nels had owned this townhouse for almost the entire time that Sherry had lived in it. Mm -hmm. And when he and his wife would come to visit, he knew from personal experience that the security was very, very tight. So if Sherry would get like hung up at work and couldn't get home right away, the management wouldn't even let them in 
even though his name is on the deed, he wasn't listed as a resident. So they would have to wait until Sherry got home to let them in. They would just have to sit on the road. But he, he wasn't, Nels loved that. That's a huge reason That's why he why bought this it. place, you know? And so he really appreciated that. But so the fact that this woman has now gotten past that management, multiple security gates, all that stuff, it's happened twice. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like that part is actually quite unsettling. But she's a cop. She has a badge. She can flash that badge. She can get in anywhere. Yeah. Honestly, this that part is never really explained. Okay, I bet it's a badge. It could be. The fourth complaint comes a few weeks after this. So now it's mid-January. Sherry calls her parents in tears. They said Sherry did not cry easily. So this was really, really bad. Mm. She said that she decided to work from home one day unexpectedly. Normally, John would have gone into work late that day, but he had a meeting. So he'd gone to the office early. She said it was around 10 a.m. She was upstairs doing paperwork and she heard a noise downstairs. So she goes down and she finds John's ex standing in the middle of the living room in her full police uniform, including the gun on her hip. Sherry had been so shocked. She didn't know how the woman had gotten in and she didn't know how long she'd even been there. The woman told her she was expecting John to be home. And obviously, Sherry tells her to leave. And the woman left without any objection. So when Sherry tells her parents about this, they speculated that obviously if she's in uniform, she's on duty. So she's going to just obey and leave because mm-hmm. otherwise Sherry could call the cops. And then then how do you explain that? Yep. You know, this made Sherry wonder, obviously, if the ex usually came over while she was at work and she had asked John repeatedly to stand up to this woman, but he was just too scared to. So she realized that between the ex's dominating demeanor, someone who is clearly used to getting her way, and then someone like John, who's terrified of confrontation, this is kind of left Sherry in the middle to deal with it. Awful. This was the fourth time in six months that Sherry had confided in her parents about a disturbing encounter with this particular ex, but she had never mentioned the ex's name or any other identifying details apart from the fact that she was an LAPD cop. That was it. The fifth time that Sherry complained about the ex was on January 28, 1986. She was having lunch with a friend and the friend later recalled the date so easily because that was the day that the space shuttle Challenger had exploded. So oh. it was all anyone was talking about. Yeah. They you know, meet for lunch and she remembered Sherry saying that, oh, I feel so bad for those all the people yeah. who died and their loved ones. It's just so terrible. And so during this this lunch, Sherry told this woman, her friend, that an LAPD cop named Stephanie, someone that John had dated in college, had been harassing them lately. She wouldn't leave them alone. And Sherry didn't give any details about what harassing meant. Mm-hmm. She didn't tell her anything. But she did say to, something to her that... She was wondering if this ex was following her because she kept running into her in weird places like the dry cleaners or the gym, stuff like that, or the gas station. Like of all places in Los Angeles to run into someone at a gas station, that makes no sense. But she repeatedly ran into this same ex at a gas station. So do you know, I don't remember when you said that she called her dad about getting the alarm installed. That was in December. And then... Okay, so that, but then I'm curious because if she's telling her dad about all of these things, then he shouldn't be shocked that they want to get an alarm system. That all that stuff happened after, though, after the alarm. Got it. Later that same day, the space shuttle day, uh, Sherry calls her parents and reiterates that she's had this feeling of being followed lately. 
And she thinks that sometimes the ex dresses up as a boy and then will sit like a few tables away from her and John at restaurants. Oh my God. I believe it. Yeah. So for her birthday on February 7th, Sherry and John spent a few days in Tucson with her parents and they had a really nice time. And on their last night there, Sherry found herself alone with her dad for a few minutes and she said, I have to tell you something. She swore him to secrecy. She told him that she had a very serious problem back in LA, but she couldn't tell him what it was. She made him promise not to say anything to John or her mom, Loretta. Mm -hmm. So Nels offered to come to LA to help. He's like, I'll do anything. What is it? Can I help you? I'll come to you. Just ask. And she's like, no, I have to deal with it myself. I don't want to ruin or weaken my marriage if nothing of what I've surmised is true. Okay. So the next day when Nels and Loretta dropped them off at the airport, Sherry could tell that her dad was worried. So when she hugged him, she whispered in his ear, if I don't have the problem under control in two weeks, I'll call you so you can come out and help. And this was two weeks before she died. Oh my gosh. Nels said that just before they boarded the plane, Sherry stopped, looked over her shoulder at her parents and smiled. This was the last time they saw their daughter alive And Nell said for the rest of his life that whenever he pictured Sherry in his mind, it was that image he saw. He chose not to see Sherry's body after her autopsy because he wanted that image of her boarding the plane to be the only one that he had. Mm -hmm. So Nell's and Loretta shared all of this with the police, but they were told that John never mentioned any of this and denied having an issue with any ex, much less an ex who was you know, currently on the same police force as them. And because Sherry had never told her parents the ex's name, they didn't even have anything else to go off of. And because the cops believed they'd solved the case, they didn't speak to Sherry's friends who had also heard about the harassment from the ex, some of who knew the woman's name. Yeah. And in a particularly disgusting part, Nels had once mentioned to detectives that when Sherry first moved to LA, he had tried to coach her his sweet, gentle daughter, on how to defend herself if ever she was attacked. He'd offered to buy her a gun, but she said she didn't want one in the house, and even if she did, she didn't think she had it in her to shoot someone anyways. So Nels tried to coach her, um, you know, in the event of an attack, fight with every ounce of your being. If you have to fight to the death, fight to the death. So he had mentioned that to the police, kind of like offhand. Detective Mayer got mad every time Nels asked about the lady cop. And finally, one day he'd had enough and he turned the table on Nels and told him, quote, I really believe that if Sherry hadn't fought back, she might be alive today. It's possible that by coaching her to defend herself in a physical altercation actually resulted in her death. So that's like right up there with Matt Muster claiming that sexual assault victims like to relive that thrill and excitement of their assaults. So Sherry's case remains open and cold and life goes on. In 1989, John reconnects with Stephanie. They go to Hawaii together. (gasps) What? Where they have sex multiple times. Even though John always insisted that He didn't have an ex that they had any problems with. Apparently, before he took this trip to Hawaii, he called the police, Detective Mayer, who was investigating his wife's murder, just because he wanted confirmation that they knew without a shadow of a doubt that Stephanie was definitely not connected to Sherry's murder. 
no, you're fine. Go have a good time. She's not in any way connected. Aloha. <laughs> yep. So clearly John didn't want to believe Stephanie could be involved, but the question lingered somewhere in his pea-sized brain enough that he needed to double check that he wasn't about to have sex with his wife's murderer. So this is basically the reality of this, this detective formed a connection with him belief that he had worked this story out so that when sherry's parents come in and start badgering about this cop who's been harassing them and you gotta look at this cop blah, 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 you know and john's like no we didn't have a problem with an ex and obviously he he probably did tell them at some point yeah her name is stephanie lazarus she is an lapd cop and they what the police did with that i don't know mm-hmm. but you know years later that question that thing that nels keeps talking about is still in his mind somewhere so he got confirmation that she wasn't involved and he went and also, banged a bunch in yeah. Hawaii. But nothing really seemed to come from their reunion. Like they didn't start dating or anything like that. John still didn't want to date her. <laughs> so they go their separate ways. Stephanie married a fellow cop and adopted a daughter. And then John remarried and started his own family as well. Nels and Loretta are the only ones who keep working at Sherry's murder. They know in their gut that the police are wrong and they're not willing to move on like everyone else has. The night that they were woken by the call telling them that their child was dead, they had to sit at home for hours waiting for the first flight out to LA. So Nell said that he had sat down and written out everything he could think of about Sherry's life the last few months. Her work life, her friendships, her marriage. Sherry was usually so cool and calm and collected, so confident and so independent Mm -hmm. But the level in which that she confided in her parents in the last six months of her life, the amount of times that she cried to them about John's lack of spine, the harassment from John's ex, they realized a very serious issue had been slowly escalating and it wasn't until viewing it laid out like this that they realized these were all warning signs and not just sporadic, trivial complaints. Yes. But you don't know what you don't know. And hindsight is always twenty twenty, especially after you're, you know, you've lost your child forever. And at the time, Nels and Loretta thought they were just respecting Sherry's boundaries and they didn't want to meddle in her marriage. Yeah. And violence was not on anyone's radar. It doesn't seem like it was even on Sherry's radar. So over the years, they continued to advocate for their daughter. They put up a $10,000 reward. Uh, they wrote letters to America's Most Wanted. They cooperated with anyone who wrote a story on their daughter's death or expressed interest in bringing more attention to it in any way. In fact, they even got connected to the author, Anne Rule. Oh, wow. Sherry's family had written to her about the case, and Anne was so interested in it that she asked them to fly to Seattle to meet to talk about what a a book on Sherry would look like. So they do it. They fly up there specifically for this meeting. Um, Anne rented out a, a room in a restaurant so they could talk privately. And then they had like a three hour, basically uh, a meeting planning out the book. Wow. Yeah, She was so excited and so interested in the story. And she wanted to write the murder from the perspective of Sherry's cat who had been in the townhouse at the time. Okay. And so, <laughs> yeah, that seemed like a little bit odd to the Rasmussen's, but like they didn't care. They were just yeah. so grateful that someone with this much influence could look at the case and see what they yeah, saw. Yeah, absolutely. So that was all that mattered to them. Anne told them that since she lives in Seattle and not in Los Angeles, she relies on a private investigator who was a retired LAPD detective to help her with her research process. Okay. So she told the Rasmussen's she was so excited to do this, even gung-ho. Yeah. And they would be in touch soon. 
But a few days later, Anne called them to say this wasn't going to work out after all. She'd given the information to her PI, who took one look at Sherry's case and told Anne he refused to touch it because it's, quote, too hot to handle. Yep. She told Nels that, you know, because she lived in Seattle, she just, she wouldn't be able to do the research required without his help. So she was really sorry, but she couldn't do anything with it. Around the same time, Nels was getting so fed up not getting a straight answer or sometimes no answers at all from LAPD about Sherry's case that he decided to go to the Tucson police and see, could they do anything? So he walks into the police station in Tucson. He told a homicide detective everything about his daughter's murder and asked, could they help in any way? And he's like, okay, I got to call the the lead detective at LAPD. Yeah. So he calls him. He explains, you know, who's there. He's asking for help. Yeah. All Detective Mayer tells him is, we think it's wise if you solve your crimes and let us solve ours. Don't get in the middle of this. You don't solve anything. And hung up. Right. Exactly. So the Tucson detective apologized to Nels and said, you know, without LAPD's cooperation, they can't do anything. But he connects Nels with a coroner, like a local coroner in Tucson. So Nels goes to this guy and he gives a, a copy of Sherry's autopsy report to him. And says, can you just look at this and tell me, what do you think? You know, is there anything you can take away from this? Is anything look weird or bad? And the guy was so kind. He was so compassionate. And he said, leave the report with me for like two or three days. I'm sure I can, I can look at something and I'll get back to you. So the next day, Nels is shocked when someone returns the autopsy report to him with a note from the coroner that says, that says Nels, I can't help you. I'm too close to retirement. So mm. clearly people are looking at this and realizing something it's is go- something's going on and it's way too delicate to start poking holes in suggesting to the police that they're doing something wrong. Absolutely. You know? So in 1993, about seven years after Sherry's death, Nels is making his annual check-in with LAPD and he asks if they can get the DNA samples tested now that DNA testing has made such huge breakthroughs. And he was told that the department couldn't afford to test the samples. So Nels is like, okay, I'll pay for it then. And he even finds a lab that's willing to do it. And the department tells him that no, like testing is just pointless unless you have a suspect's DNA to compare it to. Okay. Which at the time was true. So that's it. Nothing happens in this case for a couple of decades. Wow. Until in 2004, this is 18 years after Sherry's murder, a detective with LAPD named Jennifer Francis is assigned to comb through cold cases she needs to look for any dna evidence collected from years before testing was available and sherry's is one of them in the file she sees that the saliva collected from the bite mark on sherry's arm had been tested in the 80s and it had been determined to belong to a woman however sherry's file contains zero mention of any female suspects there's no mention of nels and loretta repeatedly bringing up john's ex And then she finds a small handwritten note from Detective Mayer. It's dated November 19th, 1987, so that's nine months after Sherry's murder. The note reads, John Rutten called, confirmed Stephanie Lazarus, P.O., was former girlfriend. And she's like, oh my God, does P.O. mean police officer? So she looks in the database and she sees that LAPD has had a detective named Stephanie Lazarus since like the early 80s. So she's like, okay, I got to have all of the DNA evidence tested. And then when she goes to check it out, she finds that 11 years before this, only weeks after Nels had called and offered to pay for the DNA testing, 
A Van Nuys detective named Phil Morritt checked out all of the DNA evidence from Sherry's case. Her file does not show that anyone requested the samples be checked out, and the evidence is never returned. When Morritt is asked about it, this is 11 years later, he says he has no memory of checking out the evidence, and he has no idea what happened to it. So it's all just missing. Who's her? Didn't she marry someone that was in the department? She did. His, he, it's not him? Not, it's okay. not him. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so just when you think all hope is lost, Jennifer sees that there is one DNA sample, the saliva from the bite mark that was not listed in the items that Morit had checked out. But there, she doesn't know where it is. So she knows for certain that he didn't take it out that day, but it's somewhere. So she starts hunting it down. She calls the coroner and she asks them to check if it happens to be with them still. They check their database and they say no. So she does her job and she's like, then can you go check your freezers by hand? So they do it. And in the very back of a freezer, they find Sherry's sample and it has been shoved in the back and the freezer wall has like damaged the envelope, which had the case number on it. Mm -hmm. So every time that it wasn't technically in their database, but uh, Sherry Rasmussen's name was on the envelope so that's how they knew it was definitely hers so she takes this to her you know whoever's above her explains her theory that this stephanie lazarus cop must be involved somehow and they should get a dna sample from her and test it against the saliva would be smart she is taken off the case yeah okay but then in 2009 sherry's file came across someone else's desk a male detective this time and he notices all the same things that Jennifer Francis did four years before. And whoever his supervisor is allows this to go through. So maybe they, we're not so sexist now in the year of, you know, 2009. 2009 yeah. 2004. <laughs> yeah. So, so they're like, okay, how do we get a teeny sample from this Stephanie Lazarus? And then they find out that she's a detective in the art theft division, which is like right next door to their office. <sighs> So this theory that, you know, a police officer had committed murder 23 years ago and then risen in the ranks in the very department investigating the crime, that's obviously a theory that you don't just go talking about. Yeah, you can't just throw out. So this was a very confidential uh, discussion. They know that if Stephanie killed her, she would have done it when she was off duty. And records show that Stephanie had the day off the day that Sherry was murdered. They know that Stephanie wouldn't have used her department gun, but more likely her personal gun. Mm-hmm. And so after some digging, they discover that a few weeks after Sherry's murder, Stephanie had reported her personal gun, a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver, being stolen. But she had reported it stolen to Santa Monica police, not LAPD. Different jurisdiction. Yeah. And Sherry had been shot with a 38 revolver. But the final nail in the coffin... That like, you know, got a judge to agree to get a DNA sample. After repeatedly combing through everything on Sherry's case, they notice that in addition to all of that DNA evidence that's now gone, there are also multiple papers missing, like records missing that don't make any sense. And so they speculate that the items that were missing probably mentioned Stephanie Lazarus by name. They're like, okay, but who could have removed that? And how could they have removed it? Like, that's not easy to do. So in the 1990s, Stephanie had worked in the Van Nuys division, the very department where Sherry's file was being stored. Uh And they learned that she most often volunteered to work everyone's least favorite shift, the early morning one where the department was mostly empty. So they think that she would just comb through 
Sherry's file when she wanted and took out piece by piece anything that mentioned her by name and just overlooked this one little note. So they decide to get a DNA sample. That's what the judge approves. And they follow her to a Costco where they watch her eat lunch with her daughter. And after she threw away a straw she'd been drinking out of, detectives took it and tested it. Nice. And finally confirm after 23 years, Stephanie Lazarus had murdered Sherry Rasmussen in cold blood. Even though they have proof, Stephanie is a police officer with a gun. So they need to question her, but they can't risk raising suspicion when she has a gun on her because they could, she could just whip it out and shoot him. <laughs> so they come up with this plan. They go to her one morning at work and they tell her that they have a homicide case that involves some art theft. And they're wondering if she will come with them to the jail located in the basement of the building to interview a suspect. It's protocol to enter the jail. You surrender your gun. And so she's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Mm -hmm. She's like so happy to go be of help. So she doesn't know this, obviously. But on the table in this interview room where they're going to go interview this suspect, there's a hidden camera in a big binder that's facing her chair. Genius. So the entire thing was recorded. She, I can't even tell you, this was the, the, this entire interview is on YouTube. It's like over an hour. The entire thing start to finish is on YouTube. Uh-huh. It is. She's a psychopath. <laughs> it is the most chilling thing I've ever watched. Okay. So she like, she doesn't know the extent of their knowledge. Let me say that again. She thinks she's helping them interview a suspect. So when she sits down and they're like, oh, here, take a seat here in the seat that is usually for the suspect. She's like, oh, sure, sure, sure. So she sits down and she, you can tell she's a little confused, but they're like, oh, you know, we, we wanted to ask you something. Um, and you know, you know how people talk. So we didn't want to ask you this at your desk. So we thought we could come down here and talk about it. And, and she's like, okay, sure. But you know, she doesn't understand. You're like, well, do you know a guy named John Rutten? And she's like, John Rutten? Oh, you mean John Rutten? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh yeah, I went to college with him. And she's like, what does he have to do with this? Yeah. So obviously she pieces together immediately. Something's up. This is a big ploy, but she doesn't know the extent of what they know. So she doesn't want to give herself away just on the off chance that they don't know anything. But she is a freaking sociopath. So watching her try to be a normal person, to try to be cash, like let's try to be really casual. I have nothing to hide kind of thing. Like, that alone is so weird. Then you can see the panic, but she's trying to hide the panic mm -hmm. and try to play normal, which is clearly a difficult thing for her to do. Oh, it, I need to know what she looks like. Oh, wait, no. I, oh, I, I, I want you to- no, I've no, been no, dying. No. I know, but I want I want you to see this little clip that I'm going to put on oh, Instagram. Oh, okay, okay. Like I, there's a specific clip that I like cut and I'm going to put it on like our Instagram post for this episode where she's trying to act casual. It is so she's like, hey, okay. bothersome. I want to just fucking show <laughs> Yeah, just you. show it to me because this I is, am This dying. is almost done. I've been fiending for close to an hour. Sorry. Oh! Okay. One, she's so gross. Sorry. She's so ugly. She's so gross. Two, she, it's like, a, that's a meme right there. Like, mm, 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 mm. that looks like me when like, my boyfriend walks into the room with like gray sweats on and I'm like, mm, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> I should Brett. He like walked in when I was watching it and yeah. he, I, so I just kind of briefly told him what this was and he was watching it and he's like, Oh my God, look at her eyes. Yeah. They're dead. so scary. They're dead. Yeah. So 
they're asking her a couple details that you know can you remember you know this guy john you dated in, in college his wife oh, died his wife had you know was killed you know and she's like mm, yeah i kind of remember something like that you know she's claiming she really didn't know the wife she didn't even remember her name she may have seen like a flyer around the department or something yeah. about that about her dying but she doesn't know her she doesn't recall ever meeting her and the detective they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and, and, mm-hmm. and eventually they're like do you ever like fight with her like did you ever duke it out with her and she's like hmm duke it out yeah no, I, I you know it doesn't sound familiar to me I don't I don't think so. And like she's claiming she doesn't even know if she ever met this woman. And then she's claiming on top of that she doesn't recall if she's ever gotten into a physical fight. The fact that she like they're asking her details. Do you remember hearing about how your ex-boyfriend's wife was killed or, you know, those kinds yeah. of things? And she's like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm sure I called him or something like that. I'm sure I talked to him about it after. She's not good. Her attitude, her dismissive attitude of like trying to act like this is so trivial. Like they're, it's it's as if they're asking her, can you remember what you had for lunch on this random Tuesday 20 years ago? Anyways, very upsetting interview. If you want to watch it, it's on YouTube. After an hour, she definitely realizes she's being treated and viewed as a suspect mm-hmm. in Sherry's murder. So she gets up and she's, you know, ready to walk out. And so she walks out into the hall, tries, very to, get her, chill way. <laughs> tries to get her gun back and she's arrested on the spot. So, uh, you know, it goes to trial um, in March of 2012. Stephanie Lazarus was sentenced to 27 years in prison for the murder that she had almost gotten away with. Mm-hmm. So when Stephanie joined the LAPD in 1983, she was required to write an essay and part of it read, quote, I view my role as a police officer as first an enforcer of the laws. As a police officer, I must also help people and be a mediator of their problems. One of the most important aspects of a police officer is as a role model. If people see that I am honest, trustworthy, and do a good job, they will respect me, the job, and the department. And three years after writing those words, she murdered Sherry Rasmussen in cold blood and then staged the crime scene to throw off and confuse her colleagues. So Nels Rasmussen lived for 30 years after losing his daughter but he never gave up hope that one day justice would be served. He continued to advocate for his little girl every day, and luckily he lived to see his daughter's murderer brought to justice, while simultaneously being witness to a light being shone on, you know, more proof of serious police corruption and cover-ups, especially when it comes to protecting one of its own and his, his gut instinct that something fishy was going on was validated and proved. Trust that gut. And that's the story of Sherry Rasmussen's murder. Well, I feel like, I don't know why you thought that would trigger me. I feel like I kept it pretty cool. You, as, kept, uh, you kept it cool because you were prepared. I was also as cool as Stephanie, I believe, in that yeah, interview. Super Very chill. chill. <laughs> super chill, super normal. Um, I have a question about, was I right about the fight scene? <laughs> With why did it last so long? Did Was there discussion? Like, did she ever discuss that? How, well, they, no, she's never admitted to anything. Oh, okay. To, to this day, she's not admitted to anything. So there were a lot of things about the police's, like, uh, speculation on what happened that mm-hmm. is still speculation because she's never admitted to it. And I don't know what it was that made them think that they fought for so long, for 45 minutes or up to an hour and a half. Yeah. Like it's just, it's such a strange 
thing when mostly the mess was just contained to the living room. So I don't know why they thought that, but there for sure was a massive fight. And I found this one part of the the book that I read was very interesting. He explained that in the police academy, the recruits were required to take a physical course on gun retention. Like it's designed to teach the future officers how to physically fight with someone in order to prevent anyone from taking their gun from them. So by the end of their academy training, all male and female recruits had fought with each other in this course. And one of the male recruits like remembers specifically that Stephanie, despite only being 5'7 and 130 pounds, was one of the toughest fighters in the room. Really? He remembers she was the strongest, toughest, and most aggressive of all the female recruits. And when she was cornered, she would literally go ape shit to get out of a hold or uh, escape. In fact, every male recruit that she fought, all of whom were significantly larger than her, remember how elusive she was and how aggressively she fought in these drills and that the only reason that they ever managed to overpower her was simply the discrepancy in their size so imagine how difficult that must have been for sherry like not expecting to find someone in her house and then who fights like that you don't stand a chance no she has that crazy girl strength literally that crack strength she's got those crazy eyes and that crazy strength and she was just that that's Torian. I know stubbornness, <laughs> stubbornness. to see it through. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, just recovers and gets married and has a kid. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Can you believe that, honey? Uh, boyfriend, if you're listening to this, I'm nothing like her, <laughs> except for some things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm not like her. No. Just the stubbornness. You're nothing like her, and. uh that's the thing. If someone breaks up with you or is like, I don't see you like that, you're like, okay. I'm like, bye. Yeah. I will not try to convince you. No. <laughs> that was really, really good. Thanks. I feel like you're, um, you pick excellent um, male betrayal <laughs> stories. I don't mean to. I didn't know about that. Like when I, when you read this at a glance, it doesn't really dive into that stuff about John. Mm-hmm. It's more about like this, this vengeful girlfriend from college, ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of like. They don't paint him as having anything to do with no. it. No. And and I do want to say he says that it, it devastates him beyond anything that he could explain that Sherry is dead because of someone in his life and that if they had never met, Sherry would probably still be alive and that's something that he has to live with forever. And I he I don't know what what if anything he has said on the fact that they had sex a few years later but yeah. can you imagine just just imagine for a moment this horrible thing happens to you you lose your partner in this mm-hmm. vicious senseless act and in your mind you don't want to believe so you don't believe that your ex had anything to do with it and you just want to be comforted by this woman who's and, and always this, there this is years later it was like two years later that yeah. they went to hawaii so let's just say you you know your life goes on you move on you reconnect with someone you have sex a bunch in hawaii And then you find out like 20 years later, she is the one who killed your wife. Like, could you, I can't even, it's, it's one thing to register, to register what you slept with that. I know, but I mean, sleeping next is, I think that's more vulnerable sleeping next to somebody versus, I don't know. There's something about that. I mean, they're both vulnerable feeling you're, well, you're just entrusting yourself. Your, your lights out. Like you're, you're unconscious ultimately next to somebody that to me is very it's a very vulnerable time but I really don't like the fact that he still I mean his personality type is just so predictable to me but like the fact that he can't even take responsibility with that statement 
when he said that he is just just feels so bad that like someone in his life did that to her where it's mm. like no, no 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 take you can just take a quick step back and say if I hadn't slept with this woman, if I hadn't visited this woman at her house, if I hadn't continued to allow her to show up at my door, mm-hmm. then she maybe wouldn't have been dead. Yep. Take a little bit of responsibility. Yep. You are a piece of shit. Yep. John, if you're listening, we don't like I you. literally don't like you at all. Yeah. Borderline hate. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I totally agree. Well, good right. job, Ash. Thank you. Sorry for the triggering, but... No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm pretty mentally strong so i just think <laughs> this is a wonderful example of like why you have to tell people about what's going on in your life and also because don't she, marry idiots that well don't yeah that should be the back. first thing like marry someone with a little spine first but like if something's going on in your life like don't keep it a secret because if she hadn't confided in her parents and her friends yeah. stephanie would still be walking free gotten away with this murder it's very true Wow. Okay. Well, I'm gonna. I already. I was gonna say. Well, I'll start telling you everything, but yeah, I already, already do. do. <laughs> okay. Love you. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.